Our text this morning comes from two places in the scriptures. One is Genesis 5, and uh, beginning in verse, I'm sorry, not Genesis, let's do Ephesians 5, and uh, verses 22 through 33. These countercultural words to us from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And then from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 24. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, and then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, this is, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat in all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her, your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, 
I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat your bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And then the Lord said, Behold, the man is become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent, out from the garden, sent, the, sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Father, I ask this morning that you would make your book live and that you would show us yourself in your word and that you would show us ourselves in your word. Your word is given to correct us. It's given to instruct us. It's given to chastise and rebuke us when we willfully go astray. It's given to encourage us when we are down. It's given to train us in righteousness so that we know how to behave amongst the people of God. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would make your word live and do that in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, there was a, a pastor who uh, went to visit um, a lady one time, and, and he knocked on the door and even though she appeared to be home, uh, no one answered the door, so thinking he would be clever, he took out a little business card and he wrote, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And he left that card in the, uh, in the door, or in the mailbox. And uh, a couple of days later, he came into the office and he'd gotten his card back, and it said, uh, I heard the voice of you in the garden, and I hid myself because I was naked and ashamed. So. That's the one joke you get this morning on a very serious, serious subject. Um, in the last couple of sermons, I've attempted to make two main points. First of all, that it's possible, indeed, that one day it will be the only possibility uh, to have a hierarchy of differences within the context of a fundamental equality of essence. In other words, we can all be equal and yet some people can have positions derived from God where they have more authority or less authority. And that that's not a bad thing. That's not a, an occasion for rebellion. That, that there are things that have to be done right, but that it's not a bad thing. And that, that God himself operates that way. Even though the persons of the Godhead are equal, yet there's this voluntary and joyous submission on the part of some persons of the Trinity to other persons in the Trinity. We also see it among the angels. And we're told uh, that there will be degrees of glory in heaven, uh, that there are differences of reward in heaven, in part based on what we as faithful Christians have done for the Lord down here. And there will also be degrees of responsibility 
And with that responsibility always goes authority. God doesn't give people responsibility without giving them the authority to carry out their task. And so some will rule one day ten cities, says Jesus in the parable. Others will rule five cities. And I attempted to show you that even before sin entered the world, the fifth commandment was still in force. That parents had authority over children. And in the wisdom of God, husbands and wives were meant to work together in a complementary way on the God-given tasks associated with keeping the garden and expanding the garden and subduing and ruling the creation that God had given them. But that God had given headship for that task and authority to the man. Now, because there was no hellish selfishness and no pride in the world, Adam would not have abused his authority. And Eve would not have resisted his authority. She wouldn't have undermined it. Now, this clearly is not how things are today. Some men abuse authority. Other men abdicate their responsibilities out of laziness or out of fear or out of selfishness. Some women stay in situations they should not stay in where their life is in danger. Sometimes they do it out of fear. Other times they do it out of a misplaced sense of dependence. But others are relentlessly driven to try and arrange events and more importantly, people in their lives to suit them and their ego needs and to attempt to alleviate the anxieties that they wrestle with. And the Bible says that none of these things are supposed to be found among us, the people of God. Not only are they found among us, they're sometimes defended and celebrated, even when they're not consciously recognized. So this is one of those places, loved ones, where you have to decide who is right. You have, you have two ways set before you this morning. You have God's way and the, the world's way. You've got to decide who's right. Is it Elaine Pagels and Simone de Beauvoir and Gloria Steinem and Jane Fonda and the Marxists of the Frankfurt School? Or is it Jesus? You have to choose. The, the people who have explicitly said that they want to destroy the nuclear family, they've written it down. They've said this is a tool of oppression and this is a, a way that this is a key part of the system that we want to overthrow and this is how we're going to overthrow it or, or God who said no I, I gave the family and I ordered the family because you can't have both you just can't you have to choose so the question that I would like to begin exploring today and we won't finish today we'll finish next week is how did we get into the mess that we are in, for only when we understand how we've gone wrong can we put things right. So how did we get into the mess that we're in? And we have to go all the way back to the beginning. We have to carefully examine Genesis 3, and when we do that, we not only see why we're in the mess we're in, generally speaking, but we also see that there are deep patterns, deep currents of sinful energy or whatever you want to call it, that continues to reverberate down through history because of our sin and because of the curse of God 
associated with our sin. And I'd like to unfold some of those patterns for you because they will help us understand why we are the way we are and what needs to be done about it, what, what wholeness looks like. You can't get well when you're sick until you understand what well is. You, you don't know what you're aiming at. You can't get strong until you know how weak you are. Well, in Genesis 3, we're introduced now to this serpent. And this is obviously more than a snake. The New Testament tells us that. Um, The enemy of our souls is prowling in the garden, and he hates God. And he hates the man and the woman, and he hates them precisely because of the dignity and the position that God has created them for and the privilege of being made in the image of God. You know, it must have been widely known among the angels that one of their main tasks was to be what in the New Testament we're told in the book of Hebrews are ministering spirits who served God by watching over the man and the woman and their offspring, by serving them. It it would be no mystery to the angels that one day the man and the woman would rule the angels, would command them. We're told that we're going to judge the angels. Now, in the biblical understanding, judge doesn't just mean innocent or guilty. It means rule. It means administration. So we have the book of Judges, and those were men, and in one case a woman, Deborah, who, who ruled the nation of Israel before they had a king. Perhaps God announced to the angels that his plan for the man and the woman and their offspring was unique, and it was wonderful. And perhaps he said that the most wonderful and the most unique parts were a secret in his counsels. We do know, because the New Testament tells us in 1 Peter and chapter 1 and verse 12, we do know that the angels burn with an intense and ongoing desire to look upon God's plans and purposes for his people. The word in Greek is literally the same word that is translated other places as lust. The angels lust to know what belongs to us and our salvation. The mystery of our salvation. That's something that they're just, they're, they're fascinated with it. They're, they, they can't stop looking at it. They're, they're in some way kind of have a holy jealousy of us. Well, we don't know why the potential to go wrong was found among the angels, but it's not hard to see how it happened, given those circumstances. Here's here's an angel. Just think about an angel sitting there in in glory. And, And they're very high, and they're very exalted, and they're very pure, and they're very strong, and they're very spiritual. And they look down on these little mud babies that God has made. And they're told... One day you're going to be ruled by that mud baby. But until that day, I want you to serve them and their offspring, even though they're lower than you, as well as when they're elevated above you in future glory. I I want you to know that these little mud babies, they're, they're the recipients of privileges that even the unfallen angels feel a kind of holy jealousy about. And so it's not hard to see how some angels would feel an unholy jealousy and an unholy envy. 
And Satan was one of those angels. And Satan fell. But look how it shook out, because we're going to see a pattern here. The sin has a pattern. It repeats itself. And, it, and, and in our character, we say who our father is, so to speak, by, by the patterns that repeat in our lives. So Satan falls. How did that shake out? God said, Lucifer, I want you to serve. I, I want you to help. I want you, I want you to know that that's part of what I created you for, was to, to serve the little mud baby. And the devil and his angels said, no. No, instead, I'm going to make them my servants, my helpers. I'm not here to help them. They're here to help me. God said, one day they will rule over you and command you and judge you. And the devil and his angels said, nobody tells us what to do. It's an insult to our dignity. Human beings aren't worthy of that. No, no, no. We will rule over them. God said, I made these creatures in my image and they are precious to me. They shall be the recipients of unimaginably valuable reward. And Satan said, I will make myself in God's image. I shall be like the Most High. I shall ascend the throne. And nobody tells me what to do. And nobody withholds something I desire from me. God says to Satan, to Lucifer, your works will bring you to eternal death. Satan responds, I shall defeat God. He will not be able to send me to the lake of fire. Death will not come to me. I shall prevail. That is what Satan's disease looks like. That's the symptom profile. Now that sin has infected his being. And he comes, and he comes to spread his disease. And when it infects the man and the woman, it takes on, they take on symptoms that are remarkably similar to Satan's symptoms and the symptoms of his angels. And in the passage today, Satan comes to the woman and he begins to undermine the goodness of God in her head, in her mind. And he opens his first shot and he says, did God really say that you can't eat from any of these trees in this garden? Now, fix that question in your minds, loved one. The, the cry of the devil and his servants is always a question in the beginning. When he attacks you, it's always gonna, he's going to start undoing things with a question. And the question is always the same. Did God really say that? Did God really command that? Is that true? Aren't you being kind of silly just falling for that? Did God say? That's what Satan does. He comes to Eve. He says, did God really say? Notice also that Satan comes to the woman, not the man. Why? 
Well, clearly it's because she is in some way more vulnerable. We're not exactly sure how she's more vulnerable. Theologians, both ancient and modern, have speculated. Perhaps she is less experienced. She just has less experience with dealing with, I mean, God had brought all the animals to Adam, right, to name them, and all that, and so he knew all the animals intimately, but that was before he created Eve. She didn't get the benefit of that experience. So Adam knows what an animal should and shouldn't be doing, and this one's talking to her. <laughs> and Eve, for some reason, is like, this is not weird at all. You know, she's just like, I'm just having a conversation with a snake. Well, maybe she just lacked experience. Maybe nobody told her, hey, snakes are not supposed to talk. But maybe. Perhaps her personality was more open and more receiving compared to Adam's. We'll go into why that might be in a minute. But for whatever reason, he attacked her first, and she was deceived. He says, did God say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And she answers, oh, no. We can eat from any of these trees except this one. And here we see, we begin to see, we begin to catch an inkling that the fall of human beings was a more complex event than we're used to thinking about. Because Eve makes her first error here. She adds to the word of God. We're not even supposed to touch it or we'll die. Now, God had never said not to touch it. He just said not to eat it. We don't know where she got the idea she shouldn't touch it. Maybe, maybe Adam had taken her and said, hey, that tree over there, don't eat of that. As a matter of fact, don't even go near it. Just don't touch it. Or maybe she said, oh, well, if it's that dangerous, I'll just stay away from it. I won't touch it. But for, for whatever reason, she added then to the word of God. So that's, that's the first error. Now, one of the things that becomes apparent here is that we have another example of Adam's authority over his wife before sin entered the world because God had told Adam not to eat from the tree before he created Eve. And yet Eve was in possession of the basic information. In other words, God relied upon Adam to communicate his word, his commands to Eve. He was to be her teacher in these matters. Now, in Reformed theology, we talk about the three offices of Christ. Christ is prophet and it, for us, for his people, in that he speaks God's word to his people. Christ is what Adam should have been. Christ is the last Adam, it says in Romans chapter 5. The first Adam failed as a prophet to his wife. He did not make sure that she had an accurate knowledge and understanding of what God had said. And life and death hung in the balance. And Eve was unclear, for whatever reason, was unclear on the relevant issues and what the relevant issues were. If you're going to walk into a nuclear power plant or a high-voltage substation, you're gonna, if you're going to do it safely, you're going to need some pretty careful instruction. And if you walk in uninstructed or not properly instructed and you touch something you're not supposed to touch, somebody has failed you, unless you're just being a complete rebel and a jerk with a death wish. 
Adam was supposed to tell his wife what God had said and make sure that she understood it and the implications of it. Somehow the wires got crossed. Adam failed. Satan here then presses his advantage. He says, you won't die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like him. In other words, God is lying to you. He's lying to you and he's doing it because he wants to keep you down. He doesn't have your best interests at heart. You're a dummy. You're a sucker. You're less than you could be because God is playing tricks with you. So basically Satan is saying God's deceiving you. He's holding you down because he can't stand having anyone else on his level. If you eat of it, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And Eve, I should know, I tried it too. I tried to take my rightful place as God's equal, and you would not believe the fit that God pitched when I did that. Come on, Eve. Let's take him on. And this seems plausible to the woman for some reason. She doesn't trust the character of God. She doesn't know him well enough yet to, to know his character, even in her unfallen state. And she looks at that fruit, and it looks good. And here we see her second error. She covets the fruit. So she's added to the word of God. Now she looks at the fruit and she covets that which does not belong to her, which has been forbidden to her. She, it looks good. It's desirable to make one wise. And she decides, you know, nobody's looking out for me. Nobody's looking out for my well-being. I can't trust God. I can't trust my husband to do right by me. I need to listen to Lucifer. I need to take things into my own hands. And that's what she does. And she eats. Now notice something interesting. Where is the man? Is he far away? Is he out of earshot? No. Genesis 3.6 says, the man was right there with her, with her. Now, I want to unpack this idea a little bit, unfold it to you. In, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13, Paul says something very interesting, and we pick him up in mid-thought. Paul says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And here's the kicker. And Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Adam was not deceived. Where was Adam? With her. Was Adam deceived? He was not deceived. So picture the event in your mind. God had given Adam prior responsibility. Adam had been told in Genesis 2.15, he puts man in the garden and he says, I want you to work it and to keep it. The word which is translated keep is the Hebrew word shamar. It also means guard. Guard. After God expels our first parents from the garden, he puts a cherubim there with a flaming sword, and the word is used again to guard the garden, shamar. To guard something is to defend it against a threat. 
Here's the threat. Adam was the guardian. Adam should have crushed that serpent's head under his heel, but he didn't. Christ is not only our prophet, one of the offices of Christ is that he is our king. A king, says the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is one who subdues and rules the enemies of his people, defeats the enemies of his people. A king is one who protects his realm. Christ is the last Adam. The first Adam failed as prophet. Now he's failed as king. He's failed to protect his realm. And he's failed to protect his wife. So Eve eats. And Adam sits there watching her. And Adam knows the command of God. He knows that he has lost her. She is spiritually dead. She's on the way to being bodily dead. Now this is speculation, but I think it's not speculation outside of the realm of possibility. Anytime in the scriptures a person came face to face with God, very often they, their faces would glow, they would shine. To be in the presence of the Holy One, uh, just, I mean, it imparts something to you. So Moses would go into the tent of meeting, and it, and it says in the scriptures he would meet with God, pene e pene, face to face, as a man speaks with a friend. And then he would come out, and his face would glow. And people were kind of freaked out about that, so they used to make him put on a veil until he stopped glowing. When Elijah and Elisha, or, or Moses, showed up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, everybody was glowing. I, I wonder, I think, that maybe part of the reason that, that Adam knew that, that Eve had died was that the lights went out. That they who walked with God face to face in the garden in the cool of the day glowed until they separated themselves from God. And indeed, one of the things that were promised is glorification. You know what that word fundamentally means? It's the, it's the word for glowing. That when we get to heaven, we will shine in the presence of God. So I, I speculate that, uh, that the lights went out. And that's why that was all of a sudden they look around and they're like, oh, we're naked. <laughs> you couldn't tell because they were glowing. We don't know, but it's possible. So Eve eats. Adam knows the command of God. He knows that he's lost her. She's spiritually dead. She's on the way to being bodily dead. Maybe the lights went out. And Adam should have immediately gone to God on her behalf. He should have begged God to do something to restore her. He should have put himself at the, as the first servant of God to help with that task. But he didn't. Christ is not only our prophet, he's not only our king, he's also our priest. Those are the three offices of Christ, prophet, priest and king. As the last Adam, a priest stands between the sinner and an offended holy God and works reconciliation. Christ is the last Adam. The first Adam failed as prophet. He failed as king. He failed as priest. Adam, knowing that his wife will die, is so enthralled with her as the gift that God made for him, that he chooses to die with her rather than risk the reconciling 
grace of God and what God might do and the goodness of God. He chooses to die with her rather than have life without her. So Eve has now become an idol. She's more important in Adam's mind than God. So Adam takes the fruit and Adam eats and Adam dies by his own hand. Adam murders his own soul. He commits suicide. You see, this is not just a question of eating the wrong thing. This is a catastrophic chain of events that leads to total failure at each and every point. One commentator writes, Satan tempts Eve by emphasizing God's prohibition, not his provision. In other words, you got all these trees you can eat of, except this one. And Satan's like, look at what he's withholding from you. And rather than, rather than Eve going, well, no, that's not that big a deal. I've got so much I can do. She goes, I want what I can't have. There are a bajillion trees. There's just one you can't eat of. And the commentator says, he reduces God's command to a question, casting doubt on God's sincerity and defaming his motives and denying the truthfulness of his threat. Eve succumbed out of weakness and out of ignorance. But the same commentator writes of Adam Man becomes a rebel. Surrounded with sufficient motives to trust God and obey God, he chooses disobedience against God. Salvation depends entirely on the Lord, not on the rebel. By God's appointment, Adam represents the race as its federal head. Thus, his sin brings death upon all. He also represents, as a model and prototype, humanity's hostility towards God. You go to the average unbeliever today, and you ask them about God, they're probably going to say, well, you know, God's a pretty nice being, and he and I are, are uh, you know, we're, we're fine. And you say, would you consider yourself hostile to God? Oh, no. No, I'm not hostile to God. Okay, well, then here's what God wants you to do. Oh, I'm not going to do that. Who tells me what to do? Nobody tells me what to do. What are you, narrow-minded, fundamentalist, bigot? And all of a sudden, you find out, no, man is hostile to God. The minute God is God, and not some nice little being who's my grandfather and my Santa Claus all, all rolled into one. The minute God is God, one who commands, one who threatens, one who issues laws, who says thou shalt and thou shalt not, man is like, mm, tell me what to do. Man is a rebel. Man is hostile to God now. That is why humanity's death is laid at the feet of Adam, not at the feet of Eve. Even though Eve was the first one to break the command of God, it was Adam who's responsible. Adam has authority. Adam has power delegated to him by God. Adam has a job. God gave him his job description. Adam failed. And God says, with your failure, the entire race of humanity is doomed. Because with authority, 
comes accountability and responsibility. Now, in the interest of time, we're going to stop here. Next week, if God spares us, we're going to look at the curse, and we're going to see how this this event, we're right in the middle of this now. You can see how Satan has already sort of transmitted his discontent and his patterns of behavior and his envy and his pride and his hatred and his rebellion. He's already, you can see how he's already started to transmit that to the man and the woman. But when we get to the curse, where God stands the three of them together and says, you're cursed in this way, you're cursed in this way, and you're cursed in this way. Loved ones, everything that you struggle with in a marriage will make sense. Everything. Because that curse reverberates through history today. And then when we see God's plan for his people within the church and the institute of Christian marriage, we will see, oh, this isn't some arbitrary weird thing. This is a restoration of Eden's goodness here in this world. And, you know, frankly, here in this world is the only place that we can enjoy the restoration of Eden's goodness because when we get to heaven, we will be like the angels, neither marrying nor given in marriage. So you've only got a few years here to work this out or make this a living hell for yourself, whichever one you're going to do, and then all the problems will be solved in glory. But it counts what you do here. And it counts for a lot of reasons. And one of the reasons is, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. It doesn't say the husband ought to be. It doesn't say the husband should try to be. It says the husband is. So when our marriages work like God wants them to, we are telling the world something about Christ and his church. And when our marriages are run like the world runs their marriages, we are telling the the world lies about how Christ interacts with his church. That's a serious thing. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, for you are my rock.